Welcome to the JNNP podcast, a monthly conversation about the best research published by BMJ's Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Alistair Noyce about his article, Nitrous Oxide-Induced Myeloneuropathy, a case series. This topic has been catching a lot of attention lately, as the UK recently announced they may make possession of nitrous oxide a criminal offense. Before we get into our conversation, just a reminder that you can subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. This was a really fascinating and fun conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Well, Alistair, it's really nice to meet you. Thank you for joining us today on the JNNP podcast. I'm Saima Chaudhry, so I'm an autoimmune and general neurologist, and I practice in Rhode Island, um, which is a small state in the United States, and I work at Brown, uh, Brown University. So it's really nice to meet you today. Nice to meet you too, Saima. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm a, I'm a neurologist uh, based in East London at Bart's Health NHS Trust, which is a very large hospital network in East London. And then I'm also a professor of neurology and neuroepidemiology at the Wolfson Institute of Population Health at Queen Mary University of London. And how's London nowadays? London's great. I mean, um, you know, our weather is not as good in the summer as lots of of places. So we had a sunny June, but um, July and August have been a bit of a washout. But, But other than the weather, London's a good place to be. Yeah, I love London. I haven't been there since I was very small. I, I grew up actually in Oxford, England, so I don't know if I told you that. Oh, wow. I moved here when I was quite young, um, and I've been in the States ever since. But I always have a special place in my heart for Oxford and London. Fantastic. You should come and visit us. Oh, yes, definitely. It's on, it's on the books at some point. But, you know, today we're here to talk about your article, which I thought was really fascinating. I loved it. Um, It's called Nitrous Oxide-Induced Myeloneuropathy, a case series. So I'm hoping that you can just give me a little bit of a background on how did you guys decide to study this? Sure. No, I'm happy to. So um, as I said, I'm I'm an academic neurologist and an epidemiologist. So I'm interested in the, the risk factors and determinants of neurological disease. And Over the last four or five years, we have seen an increasing number of mainly young people presenting to the emergency room and then to neurology services with symptoms of myeloneuropathy attributed to nitrous oxide exposure. And so there, for a time, there'd been kind of small case series or case studies from various parts of the world describing similar things. In this paper, we brought together a very large number of cases, about 120 or so, from London, uh, Manchester and Birmingham to describe the the clinical features of of this disorder associated with nitrous oxide, but also some of the uh, clinical investigation results and imaging results that we see and, and then some insights into the treatment. That's fantastic. And then how are these, I mean, you mentioned 16 to 24 year olds in the UK, how are they getting a hold of nitrous oxide? So it very easily, uh, in short, you can go into corner shops or news agents in inner city parts of the United Kingdom and buy nitrous oxide from under the counter, along with the paraphernalia for nitrous oxide consumption. You can buy it through social media and online retailers. For a long time, you could purchase it through Amazon, for example. There has been a a shift to kind of 
regulate the sale. There, there are legitimate uses of nitrous oxide in food preparation and other things. But, you know, the, the, the burden of disease that's rising here is because of illegitimate sale for illegitimate recreational use. People find it very easy to get hold of here. Yeah, I think it, that's an interesting thing that people are, are into using nitrous oxide recreationally. Obviously, being a neurologist, that's far from you know, an activity that I think we would participate in. So it's really interesting that this is something that um, younger people are are doing in the UK. We find that in the States too. We have a fear of nitrous oxide induced issues as well. But tell me a little bit about your study. Um, what were your methods that you used and, you know, what did you find? So, so this was not a what I would call a, a high quality epidemiological study, but it really set out in a large number of patients with the same problem to describe the clinical features and uh, clinical investigation results and and uh, some of the outcomes for these patients. So it was not, you know, designed as a as a robust observational study, but as a study to pull together uh, a large case series on patients. And what we what we were able to do is describe the most common presenting complaints of, of people with nitrous-related uh, myeloneuropathy, and those are, you know, paresthesia in the, in the legs, uh, to a lesser extent the arms, uh, gait ataxia and falls, and then also lesser reported but, but still important things we, we think, um, disturbances in bladder and bowel function in sexual dysfunction and, and the like. And then tell me a little bit about your findings. What, did you, what were the outcomes? So, so we, we um, as I say, we found that a very the vast majority had um, paresthesia, either with or without uh, gait ataxia. The, the ataxia that people suffer from is a sensory ataxia due to predominant involvement of the dorsal column, so loss of joint position sense, and therefore their their ataxia worsens in the in the when when it's dark and with the absence of kind of visual input as well. Um, we observed that in the cases we thought to be probable or definite that there's a very there's a high proportion that have signal change in the dorsal columns on MRI imaging particularly in the cervical spine and a lesser proportion of patients have evidence of neuropathy on uh, EMG and nerve conduction studies we reported on the biochemical findings so interesting the the, the way that nitrous oxide exerts its effects is by causing a functional block in B12, the the B12, the metabolic pathway B12 synthesis. About half of the patients that we assessed had a low B12 and the others had a B12 in the reference range. And in those that had B12 in the reference range, you see evidence of a functional block in in the B12 pathway that's uh, supported by a rise in methylmalonic acid or homocysteine. Yeah, you beat me to my next question, which is what are the lab studies that you would order? And it seems like you would order the standard ones, you B12 um, folate methylmalonic acid. Do you also get a lab level for nitrous oxide? No, we don't. We don't do a lab level of for nitrous oxide. We do the kind of uh, routine bloods that you would expect, so full blood count, urea and creatinine, liver function, thyroid function, and B12 and folate. And the way that we have set up our pathway locally is that we first do the B12. And if the B12 is low, then we have evidence for a, for a, a true uh, B12 deficiency. But if the B12 is in the normal range, then we run methylmalonic acid. And if that's raised, 
then we have evidence of a functional B12 deficiency. We published a paper just a couple of months before this in practical neurology where we described our, our clinical pathway and, and talked about the use of B12 followed by MMA as the way to, to, to identify functional B12 deficiency. We didn't talk about homocysteine too much, but increasingly we're starting to think that homocysteine is important to measure in addition to MMA. Mm -hmm. So if your homocysteine and your methylmalonic acid levels are both elevated, then what are you thinking there? So we have patients who admit to using nitrous oxide and patients that don't admit to using nitrous oxide, but present with a, um, with a, with a clinical syndrome that would be consistent with, with nitrous oxide related myeloneuropathy. And so in those people that have, um, that have admitted to nitrous oxide use in the biochemistry helps confirm that there is a there's a gut biochemical aberration that we would expect to see with nitrous oxide exposure. In people that haven't admitted to, to doing it, then we can also use the biochemistry to find evidence for that and then go back to them again and say, you know, are you sure you haven't tried uh, nitrous oxide and, 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 and use it in that way? It's amazing what happens when you um, ask the same question multiple times to a patient because then they may not tell you the first time, and sometimes they may be more amenable the more that they're um, interviewed. Yeah, and we've, def we've definitely seen that. I mean, we've standardized our pathway in our local hospital for how to deal with these cases because what they need is a, is a, a suspicion that this is the problem, prompt treatment with uh, intramuscular B12, and then really, um, you know, follow on with the investigations and, and continuous uh, B12 administration. What we, what we absolutely don't want to happen is that patients, we miss the opportunity to treat patients on the very first day because we think that as soon, you know, the earlier you can give people B12 injections and the sooner that they stop using nitrous oxide, the better the, the outcomes for them. And then, I mean, paresthesia is a rather vague complaint from patients, right? So it seems like you're saying that paresthesia is really the presenting complaint in 85% of cases. And that's, that's a yeah. high number of cases. So certainly if you see gait ataxia, bowel bladder incontinence, I think that raises your suspicion for this kind of pathology. And you mentioned that on the MRI imaging, you tend to see changes in the mid-cervical region around C3 to C5. So you're yeah. seeing this hyperintensity there. Do you, in your study, did you always see MRI changes or, or how common is it that we see MRI changes? So we, we defined nitrous oxide-related myeloneuropathy on three levels of possible, probable, and definite. And the definite category were people that had signs and symptoms and a previous exposure of nitrous oxide and then had either MRI changes consistent with subacute combined degeneration of the cord or neuropathy on neurophysiology. And so of those patients, about three quarters had changes consistent with subacute combined degeneration of the cord uh, on their MRI scan. But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a bias there in the fact that that was how the definite group were were defined based on imaging and, and neurophysiology. I see. And then, you know, in my practice, I've seen a fair number of patients of these, usually on the inpatient side. They don't typically walk into my clinic, but it's more that they come when they're admitted to the hospital with these symptoms. What are the other pathologies that we should think about as neurologists globally that can affect the posterior spinal column, which could be similar to what we're seeing in um, nitrous oxide toxicity? Well, certainly where we are, we um, this is the predominant 
uh, cause for um, for uh, subacute combined degeneration of the cord. Of course, you can get subacute combined degeneration of the cord due to uh, vitamin B12 deficiency, either nutritional or, or autoimmune. Uh, related and then it's really your your list of uh, myelopathy so that would include inflammatory causes other metabolic causes so um, copper deficiency zinc I think elevation and then you know multiple sclerosis NMO spectrum disorder these kind of things so where we have someone with a very typical history of exposure biochemistry that supports nitrous use and then a, and then a evidence of subacute combined generation of the cord on the MRI scan we tend not to investigate much further at that point but if we have atypical imaging findings or you know a history of previous neurological events then we would go down the route of investigating them for a, for a myelopathy with you know CSF studies continued uh, imaging of the brain and and the rest of the spine and and another kind of biochemical testing you beat me to my next question which was what other studies would you order you already said it MRI brain um, maybe some other spinal studies and CSF fluid because of course if you're considering something like autoimmune you'd want to rule out intracranial lesions as you're suggesting yeah, absolutely, and um, and and yeah, and some uh, and some serology as well for NMO spectrum disorder, and, and as I say, other other biochemistry as well. That is the minority. In the in the majority, we have, you know, a, a subacute history, a typical clinical syndrome, a confirmation of exposure, biochemistry that goes with it, and then we restrict our our investigations to just those for for confirmatory diagnosis. And you may not know the answer to this, but I think it's really intriguing that the cervical region is most affected by this mm. kind of pathology. Why do you think this this is? Why is it not affecting the thoracic spine? Yeah, we we don't actually know. Well, I don't know. I should say the answer to that question, but it's the the question's been posed to me before. It is quite striking in the in the figure in the paper how it tends to it tends to affect those mid cervical regions and it's much less likely to affect kind of high cervical low cervical so it's a very striking involvement of of C3 to 6 as you say yeah and then you mentioned that maybe there were some updates before we started recording that there were some updates um, that you recently gleamed information on can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, so we so we established this pathway at our hospital, which means that we see a very large number of patients with this problem. Mostly because of the pathway, they don't get admitted to hospital. We manage them in the outpatient setting, but through an ambulatory care service. And we see probably in the region of 20 patients per week. So really quite high numbers for a single condition. What's becoming clear, and um, there have been a couple of not well-publicized reports on this, is the is a possible link with nitrous oxide and um, thromboembolic disease. And we think that this is due to the elevation of homocysteine, which happens as a consequence of the, uh, of the effect of nitrous on oxide on the B12 pathway. But we now have several cases with coexistent DVT or PE and subacute combined degeneration of the cord and are starting to investigate this further. You know, when this podcast goes out, what I would like to do is alert clinicians to this possibility and to retain an index of suspicion for DVT and PE in patients with a positive diagnosis of subacute combined degeneration of the cord and nitrous oxide exposure, but also in young patients who have a confirmed clot to ask them about exposure to nitrous oxide as well. I think this is an area that will grow significantly over the next year or so.
That's interesting that you mentioned that. I've never heard of or, or been taught that you can get a DVT or PE with this kind of process. So it makes me wonder if we can see patients with other thromboembolic events like strokes. Is, is that something that you've encountered? Um, I've, I, have a, I have a couple of patients who've been under me in the last couple of years who are young patients with, uh, with a sinus thrombosis, so a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and no obvious cause. And now I have a relatively high suspicion that that, that 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 will be due to nitrous oxide. So this is an area I think obviously clearly needs research and further studies to be done. But we have we have three patients currently on our books in the last two weeks who have both subacute combined generation of the cord and DVTPE. So I think it's very interesting. And a mechanism, you know, the, the homocysteine is often very raised in these patients um, and, and that would provide a mechanism for, for thrombosis formation. It's great that you have that update. I think many clinicians globally are going to be very interested in that. And at least for me, it's going to make me rethink those patients that are admitted. Should I be worried about other thromboembolic events and maybe be a bit more vigilant on that? Yeah, absolutely. And then um, one thing that I was thinking about is... Um, you know, what else would you counsel clinicians um, to do in terms of treatment? Is there anything else that you would suggest we do in terms of treatment approaches or kind of just the standard stuff? I mean, I think this is a this is an area that really requires proper research and, and generation of an evidence base. We um, our, our kind of routine clinical pathway is to make sure and advise patients that they stop using nitrous oxide recreationally as soon as a diagnosis is suspected or made and that we give the first injection of intramuscular B12 on day one. And then as I say, in in some ways, all the other investigations can, can follow on from that point as long as they've stopped and you've started treatment. And then we give alternate day B12 for at least uh, two to four weeks and then reassess and if there's improvement of the clinical signs, then we continue the B12 until there's a point where it plateaus and there's no longer improvement. And in some people, they improve back to uh, pre-morbid baseline. In some people, they don't improve. And so um, at, at that point, we have to make a decision about whether to stop the B12 injections. But how long to treat, how much to treat with, you know, potential role for steroids or, or something similar in these patients, these are all areas that really could do with, with research. That's a common question that I get asked by patients. You know, I've, I've had a couple of patients with a, a B12 deficiency for, you know, different causes, uh, maybe one with nitrous oxide. And they always ask me, for how long do I have to be on B12 for? And like you're saying, we do the injections for a fair amount of time, like several weeks. And then I typically switch over to oral. And I've always found it very challenging to know when to discontinue oral therapy. So I guess, you know, on your recommendation, what would you suggest? A minimum of six months, 12 months? Would you get B12 levels with methylmalonic acid periodically? So so we we don't do that kind of surveillance. And, and one, I should caveat what I'm going to say by, by saying that one issue that we noticed is where we gave people very long courses of oral B12 or injectable B12 uh, hydroxycobalamin. That then created a, a black market for selling those supplements to friends and peers so we were we were we became aware of this that people were being told actually it's safe to use laughing gas as long as you're on the injections or it's safe to use laughing gas as long as you're on the on the tablets so we don't routinely give long-term replacement 
most people would stop their injections by eight to 10 weeks and many stop their injections around four weeks. And then the only people that I would routinely give long-term supplementation to is those that subsequently are shown to still have a B12 deficiency and, and you know, that may be nutritional or of, or of other etiology. And you may not know the answer to this question, but just because I'm interested, sure. <laughs> a lot of patients ask me this too. How long would you expect for patients to recover if they're going to fully improve? Like, is it months, weeks? Again, this is a very difficult question to answer because many of the patients do not engage fully in follow-up. So when we when we arrange routine follow-up appointments for patients, it's it's the minority that actually attend. So there's a bias there. So probably the people who are not attending are the ones who have likely recovered to baseline and they, they don't feel the need to attend anymore. And the ones that continue to attend follow-up are those that still have deficits. But I would estimate that it's about, um, about a third completely recover, about a third recover the majority, maybe have some mild sensory symptoms that persist uh, who knows for how long. And then there's a third that um, recovering completely and are, are left with some degree of, of disability, you know, motor weakness or ataxia or bladder or bowel complaint. Um, but it's based on the ones who, you know, do attend follow-up rather than those that don't. So acknowledging that bias. So you mentioned an interesting point, an important point. It's probably counseling patients when they see you in the office about prognostication regarding this. So like you're saying, there may be a percentage of patients that don't fully recover. So I think it's important for patients to realize that and maybe it can help them maintain compliance and not going back to that recreational activity. Uh, absolutely. I, and we and we, we do that routinely and um, both because I think there's truth to the fact that not everyone recovers. So we really want people to engage fully with their with the treatment plan. But one thing that we see in East London is a reasonable proportion of people who have previously suffered from the neurological effects of nitrous oxide and then have used it again and got much worse. And I would say that's probably about 10%, 15% of our patients. You've met them before a year or two ago, and then they come back again with symptoms that are much worse. And it's because they, they started using it again. That's unfortunate. You'd think that they would learn um, yeah. maybe not to repeat that same mistake. I think it's a, you know, this is a, this is a, a substance, a drug that often starts out with use in a very social context, people using it with one another. What we observe also is, is behavior in, in which people then maybe transition away from social use and just start using it by themselves in very high quantities. But that, that initial social aspect of it I think is is one of the reasons why people then relapse, if you like, and and attempted to to do it again. And and unfortunately, they do seem to come to much worse harm at that point. Yeah, that's too bad. And you know, I was thinking about the imaging aspect of this. Would you ever repeat the MRI of the cervical spine to look for resolution of the um, signal changes that we'd see? Yes, we have done in a in the in some of the patients who have come back to attend follow up. And in some people, the signal change persists. In some people, it's, you know, the signal change is less evident than it was. In some, it seems to have resolved completely. But that's taken into account that sometimes the signal change can be very subtle. 
people are being scanned on different scanners and you know it's been reported i tend to always look at the scans myself because sometimes it doesn't actually get picked up on the on the report so yeah we don't we don't have enough evidence of how uh, of how the mri evolves over time and usually what we do and uh, in the nhs which is publicly uh, kind of funded healthcare system is 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 based our, our follow up and our further management on symptoms rather than the scans I think that's great advice because I always tend to look at my own scans too, and it's amazing what you may pick up um, that yeah. maybe someone would have missed. So it's always that's always an important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you had to summarize some key points for our listeners, what do you think are the most important take-home points from this article? I think the most the most important things to take home are the fact that there is a real risk of neurological harm from recreational use of nitrous oxide, which in many sectors is considered a relatively safe drug. So in the main, nitrous oxide doesn't kill people. It's not as dangerous as many other recreational drugs from that perspective, but there is a serious burden of neurological harm that may be life-limiting associated with heavy nitrous oxide use. And these are young people often still in education or in the early years of employment, and that harm may persist and impact on their further education opportunities and employment opportunities. Our report also shows that it seems to disproportionately affect minoritized groups in the United Kingdom, young South Asian and black communities, more than white communities, which we which we think is an important finding. And the kind of management take-homes are that you must retain a, a high index of suspicion for this in a young person presenting with a myeloneuropathy. Ask more than once, investigate with biochemistry, and as soon as you've thought of it, advise them to stop using nitrous oxide, whether they've admitted to it or not, and start treatment with intramuscular B12. And the final take-home is that we now suspect that we will, over the coming months and years, as a few small reports have suggested already, find a link with venous thromboembolic disease associated with nitrous oxide use. And so I think clinicians on the front line managing patients in the emergency room or seeing them in acute neurology settings must be mindful about DVT-PE. And people seeing patients on DVT and PE pathways should ask about nitrous oxide in unexplained cases of venous thromboembolic disease. That's great. I definitely am going to take a lot of what you said into my own clinical practice, um, especially if I ever encounter a patient on the inpatient service that has paresthesias and be looking out for those thromboembolic events. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us today on the JNNP podcast. And I hope everyone is able to check out your article. I thought it was just fabulous. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you missed it, check out our last episode where we discuss the topic of brain fog with Dr. McWhorter. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on the JNMP podcast page. You can find a link to this in the description of this podcast. All right, that's all we have. See you next time.